This is episode 561 of the AWS podcast, released on December 5th, 2022. G'day, Simon here asking for a favor. We love to get your feedback and we really want to find out how we can make the podcast even better for all of our regular listeners. So take a moment and fill out the very short survey from the link in the show notes. Really appreciate it. Podcast confirmed. Welcome to the official AWS podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS Podcast. So much here with you. Great to have you back. And we're talking about something very cool and very new. And to do that, I have two of the people who are involved in making the thing. Because if you want to understand the thing, you need to talk to people who help make the thing. Firstly, I'm joined by Ritz Martinovic, who is Senior Product Manager here at AWS. G'day, Ritz. How are you doing? Hey, Simon. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Good, thanks. And I'm also joined by Adam Villalobos, who is Senior Software Development Manager here at AWS as well. G'day, Adam. How are you doing? Good. Uh, we are talking about something new. We are talking about AWS SimSpace Weaver. But before we talk about what it is, as ever, being customer obsessed, we want to start with working backwards from the customer. So we need to talk about what it is we're trying to solve for. Adam and Ritz, let's start by talking about what a simulation is and what customers might use it for. So maybe Ritz, let me start with you because you've been talking to a lot of customers about this. Let's let's go to basic principles. What is this? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think we really need to take a step back and make sure we're kind of all on the same page here, right? So simulation is a term that is used to describe lots of many different things. For um, And usually a simulation at a base level, its definition is the evolution of a model over a period of time, right? If we took the definition out of the dictionary, it's, that's essentially what you'd find. Now, the models take many different shapes and sizes. We can, one of the easy models that people are very familiar with is like, if you watch the Weather Channel, or if you just look up the weather, <laughs> right? I don't know if people still watch the Weather Channel nowadays, but when I was a kid, I used to. So, um, that the weather model, you know, you can run a simulation on a weather model to understand what the forecast is going to be tomorrow. And that's the output is exactly that. It's a forecast, right? It's a prediction based on a set of inputs that are churned through a model. And you can understand what the future might look like with some degree of certainty. Now, if the Weather Channel says it's sunny, it's not always sunny and it, maybe it's raining yeah, tomorrow, yeah. right? So, uh, you know, the degree to which the accuracy of those of the output really kind of is is measured on how good are your inputs, how refined is your model, and then that gives you the confidence in um, in what the output result is. Now we have, as I mentioned, lots of different types of simulations, and customers have been running simulation on AWS for a very long time. It's one of the mm-hmm. sort of core high-performance computing, what we would call HPC-type workloads here at AWS. Um, so things like computational fluid dynamics, for example, CFD analysis, as it's called, uh, customers run that on AWS. Uh, you can run other simulations like finite element analysis, which is helpful for structural or understanding um, mechanical properties of, of an object. But there's a specific type of simulation that we're really interested in, and it's what we would call spatial simulations. And it's simulations that have effectively a time and a place, and where the data model of that simulation revolves around specific objects in specific locations at a specific time. 
and then seeing how those objects interact with one another, how those objects move throughout the space, and how those objects um, ultimately, how, how that entire world uh, that they're in evolves. And it's interesting, I guess, when you think about that use case, that it applies to so many things in our day-to-day life. You know, that could be things like the flow of traffic on a road or, you know, how many people can get in and out of a conference center or a building in an emergency or or, or, or these types of things that we think about in terms of the, the physical realm in many ways, but can be difficult to predict or understand and could be affected by really small things can have big results. Yeah, indeed. It, it's kind of funny because you often think about, like, you could even think about the world around you and think of people moving about as like, you know, everybody is an object or everybody is an entity and we all have some sort of, you know, we exist in a time and a place and we all kind of move and interact with one another. And in a lot of ways, to your point, it really does kind of look like the real world in some sense. And to some degree, when customers are creating these, these spatial simulations, it is important for them to try to get as close to reality as possible. Mm. Um, and because the closer you can simulate to the actual thing you want to simulate, right, uh, the more sort of trust and accuracy that you can place in the results. Now, we see customers really, they're looking to simulate things that are obviously either too costly to simulate, to do in the real world, they're too yeah. dangerous to do in the real world, or they're simply too time-consuming to do in the real world. The nice thing about mm-hmm. simulation is you can speed it up. Like it doesn't have to occur right in real time. <laughs> uh, so those are some sort of basic reasons as to like why you'd take a real world system and then create a model and simulate it. So, so then given that there's clearly a need, and I'm sure many of our listeners are turning their minds to things that's like, oh, I could simulate this, I could simulate that. What is AWS SimSpace Weaver? Yeah, so SimSpace Weaver is our new service that we're really, really excited uh, to launch. It's it's our first simulation-specific service where we're really helping simulation developers, again, specifically these spatial simulation developers, build, operate, and oversee large-scale spatial simulations. And the key there, again, is this, this idea of large-scale, right? Because as I talked about, when customers want to simulate these real world systems, it gets difficult when you try to actually simulate them at the scale and the fidelity of the real world, because the real world is incredibly complex. Mm. It's incredibly large. Like you could just think about- Well, the the real world has a lot of processing power. (laughs) The real world, yes. In a sense, it has uh, has a lot of processing power itself, right? Of like people and things that can, that can move around. And eventually what we see is that customers hit these sort of computing limits, right? Uh, they hit the computing limit of, of really their, their hardware and they're sort of kind of constrained about uh, how much uh, the, either the complexity of that simulation, the number of objects they can put in that simulation or, you know, how many behavioral models they can simulate. And, Unlike some of those other types of simulations, like the weather simulations or the CFD simulations, um, where customers have been, you know, using highly parallel computing to do these in the cloud for many years, uh, spatial sims are very difficult to parallelize and to sort of break apart, right? Um, mm-hmm. And Weaver is 
the service here that is that is helping customers go beyond really the limits of their hardware, where they can finally bring the power of the cloud uh, to these um, spatial simulations to create dynamic 3D, 3D and 2D actually uh, worlds. Well, and nothing makes things go faster than parallelizing them, but in this use case, and if you know, if I, if I maybe draw a comparison to something, I think many listeners will be familiar with. If you think about gaming, for example, you know, you can often get a certain level of performance out of your machine, and you've got the right video card and all that sort of stuff. You, you know, but at some point, you get bogged down in the number of objects it's trying to render, etc. And then, if you say, "Well, I'll just run it across two machines," you can't because there's the whole issue of how do you keep the world in sync? How do you make it work together? These are very, very challenging problems. But really what we've got here is a service that's designed to try and take away that undifferentiated heavy lifting of that problem space. But maybe tell us a little bit about how we do that. Like what are we, what are we doing to help break beyond that sort of you know, single biggest node I can get type mental model? Yeah. So basically what we end up doing is, you know, in your typical... Uh, web-based application, you have your servers and you have your database that has all the different you know, data that you interact with, objects and other other bits. So normally you just kind of throw on more servers to just keep scaling that up. Um, and we'd like to do a you know, similar thing with these spatial simulations to so just be able to throw more servers at it until you get enough compute to be able to handle what you want. But the problem you run into specifically with these spatial sims is Dividing up that data and understanding where to put it is actually the difficult part. Mm. If you have a couple entities within the world, for all you know, these two entities, you know, just based on some of the data you have, they could interact with each other. And if they interact with each other, that means that the changes between them have to be done together. Uh, the best example I have of this is collision. So you can imagine two objects collide together. If they each process these things independently, you know, you think about objects stepping along the simulation, maybe one of them on step three goes a little bit inside the other object. And then you try to pull them back out. But if each one makes its own calculation on that, they could end up in some of these weird bugs you sometimes see in games where yeah. objects get yeah. stuck together, things fling apart weird because the calculations weren't done quite right. Like even when we have everything on the same box, this can be a difficult problem. Yeah. You can only imagine how much worse it gets once you start splitting these things up. Uh, so a big part of the problem is that you have to keep that dependent data near each other. And, you know, what we realized going through SimSpace Weaver and our development in this is that really the best way we found to kind of get this whole process started is to use their position. Objects nearby each other for most of these spatial simulations tend to interact with stuff nearby. Mm -hmm. So when we divide up the world, we divide up the world into chunks that we call partitions and that each of these partitions is given a set of entities that it owns. And that as the entities move around the world, we actually allow them to transfer ownership. So when you think about it from a database and uh, data consistency model, there's always one owner for the entity data, no matter where it is in the world. And that uh, process that owns it also owns all the stuff nearby it because it owns that entire partition, mm -hmm. right? So this is the way we just kind of enable the scaling um, without really changing the model you're programming in. Because at the end of the day, you're still processing and simulating a chunk of the world. You just don't have to do the entire world all at once. All the time. And, but, you do, but I guess you do have to coordinate, though, between those chunks. How, how do you solve for problems right. like time? And you know, <laughs> Time is, the, is always the thing that seems so easy, but it's not between uh, different systems. So how do, you, how do you keep them coordinated? 
Yeah, so we have our own scheduler system that, you know, pumps out these updates very, very quickly, you know, 30, 60 times a second, and is able to quickly tell everyone, okay, it's okay to go to the next next tick or the next mm. uh, step in their simulation. Um, and so that's something we just handle for, for the uh, different applications. You just, at the start of your simulation loop, check to see if the next tick is available. And if it is, great, you can go ahead and update. If not, you may have to wait a little bit, you know, a few milliseconds till some of the other applications in the simulation catch up. Um, and that allows us to allow some amount of synchronization between all the different processes. Um, I think the other thing you mentioned there that's really interesting is the boundaries between these mm. different spatial mm. partitions. Because as these entities get close to it, you know, what if you're interacting with something right on the other side that you don't <laughs> H2H. know? H2H. Right? <laughs> yeah, so you just... You know, someone told me once, like, well, it's great that you got it handled within the partition, but, you know, now at the edge, you still have the same problem you had anyway, so you just moved it over here. <laughs> well, for the stuff on the edge, what we end up doing is we have a concept in the system of these subscriptions. So you can, even if you only own one partition, you can subscribe to data that you don't own in a read-only fashion. Um, and so what these applications can do is they can subscribe to all the boundary areas around them that will pull in these entities. So under the hood, what's happening is we're replicating the other partitions, we're you know, calculating that subscription area and moving those entities into your view so that you can actually calculate what happens at the boundary, even if you don't own that other entity. So you can say, okay, uh -huh. okay. I'm going to collide with this entity. Let me put myself and react to this collision in the correct way, even though I don't own the other entity. And I'm going to assume on the other side that they also have a subscription going the other way and they're doing the same thing. So we have a way to handle those edge cases through subscriptions. And then as your entity actually gets over the transition, it will cleanly transfer off so that for any given simulation tick, there's always one clear owner for these entities. Um, and that, that helps resolve a lot of these issues. I'm sure there's a lot of um, technical challenges involved in solving for these problems. But, you know, early, earlier we talked about sort of, you know, we can do large simulations and, you know, everyone's definition of large is different. So let's talk about scale. What sort of scale have you been able to achieve in these simulations? Yeah, when we set out to kind of test the performance of the system, we've, we've actually been working on this uh, since kind of the end of last year. So this is kind of, as I mentioned, been a long time coming. We, we had mm. this goal of reaching a million entities. Uh, and it doesn't, a million, it's like a big number and it doesn't sound like a lot until you actually <laughs> then go and see a million things walking around your simulation. Mm. And you're like, wow, okay, we've completely like, humans have this very poor conception of like what a million <laughs> objects look like. And, and, and then and then the calculations around each of those million objects right, right. as well. So, so it's, it's a million objects updating at 30 times per second. Uh, and this is actually distributed across 10 EC2 instances. So what ends up happening here, kind of as Adam was alluding to, is you have this 3D world, right? And it could be, the 3D world could really be anything. We, we've really liked this sort of, the, these cities, these real-world data. We have customers who have been using actual geospatial data as part of their simulations. So if you imagine a city like Manhattan, for example, uh, and I'll use that because it's kind of an easy visual to have in your head when you have the avenues and the streets, it looks like a grid, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so you kind of, if you grid out the city into these partitions, uh, we can support 160 sort of 170-ish partitions 
per simulation, and it kind of depends on your configuration across these uh, 10 instances, right? And so uh, with that, we have these simulation applications, and these are deployed across the instances, and, and really uh, that's kind of, we've been scaling up the entities. And, and, and I guess that's that real trade-off then of that you know, ability to remain cohesive and coherent between the, the instances and, and the, the, the model components and getting the scale and the fidelity you want. And so this is, I guess, kind of where you've landed at the moment in terms of what, what works for customers and makes sense for most customers. Yeah, indeed. And to your point earlier that's, that scale is relative, you know, we've kind of been sort of biasing on, on the large side, right? We kind of want to go for these big numbers. But in, in reality, that doesn't have to be true. Like you could have customers mm -hmm. who, sim let's say their simulators today can simulate 10 or 100 objects but these objects are incredibly complex they have like a lot of uh, simulation logic behind them maybe there's some machine learning going on behind the scenes uh, and what they really want is to have a hundred or a thousand of these objects in the same environment interacting with one another but that's too difficult to do right because they've sort of hit the yeah, scaling yeah. limit with their hardware the so maybe the, the sort of this sort of 10x idea for them is to go from you know 10 to 100 or 100 to 1000 uh, and that's completely viable right as as a use case mm -hmm. here uh, and then on the other side you, we have customers who are simulating large crowds and they've yeah. been simulating you know 300,000 400,000 pedestrians in in a specific is in a city or in an environment and for them they're now you know pushing numbers into the millions and so that that scale is is definitely relative kind of how you want to use it and on, on your use case. And I think it's a good opportunity to really kind of, you know, talk about sort of the flexibility of the service, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. From our standpoint, SimSpace Weaver is there to help you solve the infrastructure problem. This idea of, you know, how do I get more compute power and bring that to bear for my simula spatial simulation applications? Uh, you know, how do I provision all this hardware? How do I deploy it in a manner that is secure, right, in the AWS cloud? How do I network it all together? How do I do the data management? How do I do the time synchronization? Those things you were yep. listing off before. But, you know, questions like, what do I write my simulation in? That's, that's really up, up to the developer. You know, we are providing a C, a C++ SDK. We have customers who have used that SDK to integrate with their custom simulation engine. We have customers who are using that directly with Unreal Engine. We have customers who are using that directly with the Unity mm -hmm. uh, engine. And so really sort of that, that simulation layer, that logic, uh, and what the simulation does is really left up to the customers. And then what the simulation looks like is also left up to the developers. Mm, mm. And so, so you're kind of providing the, the horsepower behind exactly. whatever tooling you're already using and yes. whatever frameworks you like to use. Yes, exactly, exactly. So we're really there to help you provide, or to help provide rather, that infrastructure layer for you. But you know, leaving the door very much open and very flexible for you know what you want the simulation to look like, how you want it to behave, and we're really trying to not have to have you create something completely from scratch, right? If you already have a yeah, simulation, yeah. Uh, we have customers who have existing simulators that have integrated with our SDK, and then actually that'll be some of the demos at reInvent. 
So we've talked a lot about sort of, you know, what it works well for, and we'll talk about some of the, the demos. But I guess, uh, Adam, you know, what are some of the anti-patterns we should watch out for? I think the, you know, SwimSpace Weaver is really focused around what I would call discrete uh, fixed time step simulations right now. They're spatial. Uh, there's a bunch of simulations that don't fit that model. For example, there's, you know, computational fluid dynamics. Um, some of the weather simulations tend to be, you know, large matrices that you're solving, and they don't really benefit a whole lot from the, you know, the time step nature of it, the spatial mm -hmm. division, because they already have methods that work really well for them um, with some of our existing HPC products. Uh, some other simulations that don't work as well as purely event-based ones. Uh, some of these are, you know, models of different like components that, you know, maybe modeling, you know, a wheel or an engine or something else that can be done yeah. locally right now. Yeah. There's simulators for, while there may be some scale in that, it's not, you know, the we don't see a lot of spatial scaling with those simulations right now. And in a similar note, the a lot of the simulations that just don't need scale, there's a ton of stuff that simulates perfectly fine as is. Fair enough. Now, Adam, one of the things we like to talk about at Amazon when we're building services is you build it, you run it. Um, and the good part of that is though, we let you choose some of the components that you're going to use to build it so that when you run it, you only have yourself to blame or to thank for the beautifulness of how your system is built. Now, I understand this service is actually uh, developed in Rust, which, which I know a lot of folks are really interested in the, sort of the, the use of this. Can you tell us a little bit more about why you chose that and how you're leveraging it for this specific use case? Yeah, so actually I'm a longtime C++ developer myself. Uh, it's one of the first languages I learned. I actually went all the way back. I, I learned programming assembly, actually. And so I'm a huge fan of C++ and everything it's given us. As we started developing it, one of the problems we started running into more and more is that really only our most experienced engineers could interact with a lot of our shared memory code. And a lot of the way we enable the performance on this service is through interacting with these shared memory segments to avoid memory copying. So when you're writing your app and you're actually writing this data into these partitions, it's actually going into chunks that we've mapped into your process and these shared memory uh, protocols so that our host processes can interact with your data without actually running into memory copies. And this is pretty important for us, but when you're trying to do shared memory interactions in C++, it can be very, very difficult yeah. to deal with that. And <laughs> <Them> dragons. <laughs> there, was, there was a time, I think one of our engineers at the time put in a very, very subtle bug. It was a new engineer, and it was probably you know a couple of days of coding for them, but it took one of our senior devs three months to drag it down. Wow. So it was just a, you know, very tiny overwrite. And, you know, we realized we were going to scale up the team, you know, just looking at the future and people maintaining this later, that if we have a whole code base working around shared memory with those type of issues, it wasn't clear how we were going to move forward. Like we'd be, you know, starting to slow down under our own weight at some point. So we started looking for alternatives. One of our senior devs at the time was really into Rust and been talking to me about it a little bit. We made a prototype because we were really concerned about performance. You know, could yeah. we actually get the same performance in Rust? And it actually was fine. Our prototypes compared very, very similar, like within like 95% of the performance of C++. And so we decided to convert most of our existing code base over. Um, and ever since then, it's been, what's been really great is we've seen a 
kind of maintaining velocity, even as the system complexity has become more and more. Like we're not seeing that with a lot of C++ code bases I found where as you get further and further into the development, things kind of just slow down because you can only change stuff so much. We're actually almost seeing the opposite, whereas we get more stuff done. <laughs> Certain things are starting to speed up and the compiler does so much checking of you know memory yeah. ownership, different issues you can run into that there's this ramp up time when developers come in where they spend probably three to four months getting frustrated with the compiler, mm-hmm. trying to understand the messages. But as our senior engineers point out, it's great because they're not putting very difficult bugs to find in the code. Like once they submit exactly. something, it's it's pretty much done. Like it's not like it's going to come back and cause an issue for us once totally. they're once a, a compiler message that you've got to de- decode is a lot better than a core dump you've got to start working backwards from. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so. You know, there's that, uh, we know the ecosystem's a bit new and you know, it's missing some things, but we feel like that that advantage is just so big and it's really helped us out a lot in the past few years. That's really, really interesting. Now, Ritz, tell us a bit about the demos that we had at reInvent recently, because I think this really speaks to some of the, the types of use cases this applies to. Yeah, and, and we're super excited about what we were able to achieve here uh, with reInvent. We've been working with some fantastic partners. Um, one of the, actually one of the two demos you'll see, the first one being the, the crowd simulation. Uh, this was done in partnership with a partner from uh, the Netherlands that are a startup called Ucrowds, and they specialize in the sort of the AI behind crowd simulation. Um, and also done in partnership, by the way, with folks like Maxar, and Black Shark, who uh, help us source the geospatial data. We've also been working with folks mm-hmm. like Cesium and Aerometrics uh, to have different types of scenes. We we did, and actually we did a Vegas scene and we have a New Orleans scene <laughs> with them. And we figured the Vegas one would be funny from the standpoint of like, well, you know, we're going to reinvent, it's Vegas. You're here. <laughs> here we are, right? So uh, the Vegas one uses high resolution photogrammetry data sourced from Aerometrics and that one was very interesting to do because we were looking specifically at the Vegas Strip and we're like, well, there's many use cases where you would host a lot of people in Vegas, like reInvent, for example, yeah, right? Um, <laughs> for example. Or we know that there's going to be an F1 race next year and they will race yeah. on the Vegas Strip. And so if you actually have to close down the entirety or portions of the Vegas Strip to you know pedestrians being able to cross back and forth and traffic, like what... How do you route people? Where's the impact of that? Like, how do people get from one place to the other? These are these are all types of questions that you would definitely want to simulate and try before you actually did it. Um, you know, you'd hate to be exactly. like, okay, here here we go. Here's the giant event, and here we go on the day. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't think about any of this stuff to, to begin with, right? And so, again, going back to the uh, things that are hard to replicate in the real world things that are expensive yeah, to replicate yeah. in the real world and also time consuming. Um, so, so that was, that was interesting. The, the other really interesting piece is when we tried to hit sort of that, that million entity number, we, we did put a million people on the Vegas strip and it, it turns out it's just not possible. Uh, well, it's, <laughs> it doesn't yeah, end simulation well. <laughs> wise, it's possible, practically not really yeah, what you want to do. Be there. <laughs> um, it turned out that all our entities just froze and didn't go anywhere because they were all running into each other. 
And so there just isn't like that much. Space. I think I've been in Vegas on nights like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could, you might be able to see some of that in, in the real world behavior as well. So, um, yeah. So, so that was that was interesting. Then, then we had to sort of tear it down, but it, it gave us an opportunity to do some interesting what if scenarios because then we went back and we like closed down some side streets and we're like, does this give us more room to operate and can people actually move around? Mm-hmm. Um, and then interesting. The the Maxar data set is is very cool too with the the New Orleans one because we actually added some interactive elements there. So we are now sort of moving from the standpoint of these simulations are purely sort of visual things to these simulations are things that are meant to be interacted with. And in that particular example, you can actually place obstacles in the environment that may not exist in the environment as it stands or as it exists today yeah, in the built yes, environment exactly yeah. and so you can kind of see well like what happens if i put a fence here or what happens if i there's a, a blocker or you know we put a giant concert stage in this area like you know how does mm-hmm. that affect mm-hmm. affect the crowds and then we kind of continue to iterate on on this idea and with uh, duality robotics and another fantastic partner of ours uh, they have a digital twin an enterprise digital twin platform called falcon and in this this simulator, they were able to integrate this with SimSpace Weaver. And what you have here is a fully synthetic environment that is, you know, kind of looks and feels like the real world, although it's not really like a... Not a real world. Not really an actual place, right? Kind of like our, our geospatial data is actual real places. And and then we, we created this EMS type scenario where, for example, a particular... Um, civilian or somebody falls sick and we have somebody that calls uh, 911 and then there is an ambulance that needs to go and render assistance and in sort of the line of thinking of the future right where we have smart cities and more interconnectedness mm. the ambulance actually has several different routes that it could take so we're optimizing for the shortest route uh, through traffic in this particular city and you can actually play as the ambulance uh, and sort of, you know, you are able to drive through the city and reach your, your final destination. Uh, and so we're, as I kind of mentioned, we're really starting to build much more of this interactivity into these simulations because at the end of the day, the simulations are not only meant to be seen, but they're meant to be interacted with. They're meant to be interacted yeah. with by multiple That's users, cool. right? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, those are those are elements that we're starting to um, starting really to come out in in these use cases that we've that we've been developing with our partners. Fantastic. So, Ritz, if if folks want to get started on this, um, how do they how do they go about it? For brand new developers, there's a easy way to get started. We actually have what we call our one-click sample simulation. So if you log on to your AWS uh, management console, you can go and start a sample simulation with just a single click. Uh, it will ask you to download a viewer that we actually built in an Unreal Engine. Uh, it's a simple pathfinding uh, simulation where we have a you know, 2D plane, and then we have some spheres that move around, and they pathfind, and they avoid one another, and they also avoid some sort of static obstacles that are within the uh, the environment. And so, without any code, you know, just jump into your AWS management console. Get up and running, see what yep, it does. Get yeah. it running, yeah. download the client viewer. Uh, we provide you a, a your, um, sorry, an IP and a, and a port to connect to from your client viewer, and you can see the the... Uh, the pathfinding simulation there. And then 
it actually has each of the different partitions are, are different colors. Uh, so you can kind of identify a, you're running a oh, multi-partition nice. simulation and the objects will change colors as they progress throughout the simulation, depending on their position. So that's number one. That's what I would recommend to, to most folks. From there, you can go down and download our SDK and our documentation and actually build and run that sample yourself. So after you've gone and nice. seen it, you know, you can build it and run it yourself and then begin integrating uh, your own simulation applications there with the SDK. And what's also really exciting that we announced it at reInvent is that for developers using Unreal Engine and using Unity, we are also providing plugins for those two engines to help accelerate the development process. Mm -hmm. So developers don't need to write those integrations themselves. So with Unreal Engine 5 and also with Unity, we will provide sort of these native out-of-the-box type integrations. We're really looking forward to having developers just pick those up and start building right away and uh, would love to yeah. hear the feedback from from folks and where they want to see us take those too. Yeah, that's, that's very cool. I can, I can see a lot of interesting things being created in the future. Ritz, thanks for coming on the show and telling us all about it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. And Adam, thank you so much for coming on and, and helping us peek under the covers as well. Thank you. Great time. And as ever, we do love to get your feedback. AWS podcast at amazon.com is the place to do it. And until next time, keep on building.